This is statistics part four. Okay. What's a cross-sectional study? A cross-sectional study come in the form of surveys, polls. It's really the first step towards a cohort study. And it can tell you prevalence, which as you remember, prevalence is a proportion of people in a given population who have a disease or something of significance or interest to you. So all those SGO surveys, doing a, a, a poll, that's how you get to know about, okay, how common is this and can I develop a cohort around this? Um, and remember, cohort studies can be prospective or retrospective. And remember that cohort studies generate relative risks. Okay. What are pros and cons of cross-sectional studies? Well, pros, they're fast and they're cheap. Cons, they're not going to tell you incidents. So you'll just know kind of a crude number of things. They tell you prevalence. But actual incidents, they're not going to tell you. And it's difficult to tease out cause and effect from something like a survey um, or a poll. All right, tell me about the pros and cons of randomized control trials. They are the best form of evidence that we have, but they aren't flawless. So pros, of course, it's our best evidence to support cause and effect. This exposure causes this problem, or this exposure improves this problem. Uh, randomizing helps significantly to diminish bias and to diminish confounding which is why we like these types of trials. Cons, of course, are how much money it costs, how much time it takes. You often need a large number of patients in randomized trials. And you risk lacking in external validity or external accuracy. So it applies to your trial population, but it is, is it real to the, or is it true to the real world? And randomized control trials re require equipoise, meaning both arms are acceptable therapy. If you don't have equipoise in your trial, then you will introduce bias. I guess you could think of an example like <clears throat> for GOAT's neoadjuvant trial, um, if everybody was asked to be randomized into this trial of neoadjuvant versus primary debulking surgery, um, then there would be equipoise. But the, this trial likely lacked equipoise and that people were not required and likely because clinicians did not feel both arms were acceptable treatment probably for debulkable stage three young patients. Um, so that is one of the downsides of a randomized trial. Tell me about umbrella versus basket trials. These are newer trial designs, so understanding the difference and understanding even what they are will be important. Okay, so with an umbrella trial, literally picture an umbrella and all the little spokes, those little pointy bits as you're holding your umbrella, you look up, all those points 
are multiple drugs and drug targets. So a PI3 kinase inhibitor, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, um, a VEGF inhibitor, pembrolizumab, but a bunch of drugs. And the umbrella itself is one disease, endometrial cancer. So that's what an umbrella trial is. It's testing impact of many drugs and many targets within one disease. Now, compare that with a basket trial. Literally picture a basket, and the basket is one drug. So in the umbrella trial, the umbrella was a disease. Flip your umbrella over, it's now a basket. That is one drug. And going inside your basket are many, many cancers that have the same mutation. So um, P10 mutated uterine cancer, lung cancer, um, brain cancer, all going into this bucket to be treated with carboplatin. So a basket trial is testing the effect of a therapy on one mutation found in multiple tumor types. It's effectively like having multiple phase two trials in one trial. So a basket trial is many, many phase two trials happening all in parallel with each other with lots of different cancers that all share a mutation being exposed to one drug. It's an efficient trial design and has accelerated the pace of drug development. So switching gears, tell me about what absolute risk is versus relative risk. So we know in cohort studies that measures, that generates a relative risk, right? Um, so what's relative versus absolute risk? Well, relative risk we already talked about in part three, I think, which is relative risk is a ratio where you are looking at the probability of de developing a risk of disease based on exposure or no exposure of something specific. So it's the ratio of that, of exposed versus not unexposed patients. An absolute risk is the risk of developing a disease over a time period, much more specific. What is my risk of developing endometrial cancer over the next five years? versus what's my risk of developing endometrial cancer if I'm exposed to a high-fat diet versus developing endometrial cancer when I'm not exposed to a high-fat diet. <clears throat> what is attributable risk and when do you use it? Attributable risk. So this attributable, attributable risk is used in cohort studies. And this is how much increased risk there is related to the exposure. So how much risk can you attribute to an exposure? So endometrial cancer in patients exposed to a high-fat diet minus patients with endometrial cancer who are not exposed to a high-fat diet. 
if you do that, so 10 patients who had a high fat diet had endometrial cancer minus two patients with endometrial cancer who had a, who did not have a high fat diet. Well, that's eight patients who had endometrial cancer who were exposed and apparently related to that exposure. So that's how much increased risk there is related to the exposure. And you use that attributable risk in cohort studies. Tell me about the number needed to treat. The number needed to treat is how many patients you need to treat in order to prevent one adverse outcome. I need to give a hundred women, they need to have a hundred women need to have a hysterectomy in order to prevent one endometrial cancer. That is the number needed to treat. So the number needed to treat is one over the absolute risk of patients who are treated minus the absolute risk of patients who are not treated. And it's important to know that the larger the clinical effect, the fewer number needed to treat there are. So for example, the absolute risk for endometrial cancer is 40% when patients are treated with placebo versus the absolute risk for endometrial cancer is 20% when they're given a Mirena IUD. The absolute risk difference is 40% with placebo minus 20% with IUD exposure. And the difference of that is 20. And so the number needed to treat is one over 20, which is equal to 0.05. That's your number needed to treat. And if the clinical effect is larger, you need fewer numbers needed to treat, right? So 20% difference in absolute risk leads to 0.05 patients needed to treat versus say you had an absolute difference of two. So that would be more patients are going to need treatment because that would be one over two, which is equal to 50%. So number needed to treat is how many patients need treatment to prevent one adverse outcome. And it's one over the absolute risk difference of those treated minus those not treated. And finally, for this segment, rank and order the levels of evidence of all the studies that we've just talked about. Well, number one are randomized controlled trials. Next would be lower quality randomized controlled trials, maybe with without equipoise, and prospective cohort studies. Remember, those are also, they're cheaper, they can be effective, you can ethically look at an exposure. Next would be retrospective studies and retrospective cohorts, and case control studies. Next down would be case series, or a diagnostic case control, versus a therapeutic case control. And finally, the very last would be expert opinion, which is just synthesizing a limited body of literature um, and not relying on high-quality evidence necessarily to generate those expert opinions. <laughs>